0: I'm Rebecca Lavoy, and this is You Can't Make This Up. On today's episode, we offer a bonus episode from the reporting team behind the Netflix documentary, Victim Suspect. Nicole Chase was a young mom with a daughter to support when she took a job at a local restaurant in Canton, Connecticut. She was good at her job, but the place turned out to be more like a frat house than a quaint roadside sandwich spot. And the crude behavior kept escalating until one day she said her boss went too far. So she turned to the local police for help. What happened next would put a detective on the hot seat and lead to a legal battle that would drag on for years, even heading to the Supreme Court. Reveal reporter Rachel DeLeon spent years looking at cases in which people reported sexual assaults to police, only to find themselves interrogated. On this episode, we explore one such case and hear how police interrogated an alleged perpetrator, an alleged victim, and each other.
1: From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letson. It's 2017. Allie Archer is in her early 20s, and she's working at No Dines Restaurant.
2: Everybody seemed very relaxed, and everybody was pretty easy to get along with. It seemed like fun at first.
1: No Dines is in a town called Canton, Connecticut, just outside of Hartford.
2: It's definitely a well-known name around the
1: towns, it seems like everybody knows Nodine's meat. Since the late 60s, the Nodine family has been curing and smoking meats in the foothills of the Berkshires. Ronald Nodine started the business. The restaurant is a new venture which opened in 2016, a couple years before Ronald passed away. His son Calvin runs this small spot off the side of the road with wood panel walls and plaid curtains. While the decor may be kitschy country inn, The vibe is more frat house. Allie says Calvin stashes beer in the back freezer and drinks on the job. She remembers one day in particular.
2: He was walking around barefoot without his shoes on, and he was drinking alcohol in front of all the customers, and it showed up on one of our Yelp reviews.
1: We found that review. It says, Very inconsistent. Owner can be seen randomly wandering in his socks with a beer in hand. Several employees at No Dines are related to Calvin. His wife helps him run the place. His stepson is the head chef. Allie is even a distant relative. She says Calvin tells dirty jokes about women, about blondes. And soon, No Dines goes from being fun and relaxed to toxic and chaotic.
2: I didn't feel safe being around Calvin.
1: And then one day, Allie says Calvin's been drinking all day and crosses the line from being crude and offensive to to getting physical with her friend and co-worker, Nicole Chase.
2: This time, he actually came up behind her and put his arm around her.
1: Nicole, like Allie, is in her 20s, but she's not a part of the No Dine family.
2: And he had this joke, and it was like a three-part joke. And every part of the joke, he would move his hand down. And by the end of the joke, he had his hand on her butt. And I just remember seeing that and standing right next to her. And... For me, I wish I had actually said something to him. I wish I slapped him, honestly.
1: But it doesn't stop there. What happens later that night at No Dines, and how police responded, will spark years of lawsuits. A police investigation and the actions of two officers will be scrutinized. And the dispute will wend its way all the way to the United States Supreme Court. The court battle that ensues lasts longer than the restaurant itself would stay in business. But before we continue, we want to let you know that this episode will describe a sexual assault and may be difficult for some listeners to hear. Reveal's Rachel DeLeon went to Connecticut to meet Ali's co-worker Nicole and to investigate the aftermath of that night at No Dines.
3: The first thing you need to know about Nicole is that the job at Nodine's restaurant really mattered to her. When she was working there, she was a young mom with a six-year-old daughter to support. I had no
4: no savings. I didn't even have a bank account. I didn't have credit cards. I had nothing. My fiance took care of us as much as he could, and besides that, I had not a
3: pot to piss in. Nicole doesn't drive, and Nodine's is close to home and easy to get to. She does a little bit of everything there, waitressing, cooking, cleaning, ringing up orders. Along the way, she gets used to putting up with Calvin's alleged inappropriate jokes.
4: Within the first day I was there, he like, oh, you want to hear a joke? Well, blah, blah. I was like, huh, huh, huh. And you're kind of laughing, but it's like a fake laugh. Like, OK, goodbye. Hey, like, let me go on with my stuff.
3: But his behavior keeps getting worse. Some of the forms of sexual harassment Nicole and Allie describe are so overt and over-the-top, they sound like scenes from a bad 1970s sitcom, like Calvin dropping his eyeglasses and then telling his female employees to pick them up so they'll have to bend over in front of him.
4: After a few times, I'd caught on to what he was doing, and I would stop picking him up, but then he'd be like, pick up my glasses.
3: Calvin is 30 years older than Nicole. When he allegedly puts his hand on her butt in front of Allie, Nicole's confused and not really sure what to do.
4: In my head, I kind of brushed it off. as like, oh, he's drunk. He's feeling good. But I didn't, like, really go further than that, I don't
3: think. A lot was going on that day. Nicole says Calvin had just promoted her to manager, and she needed her job. So again, she lets the incident go. But as the night wears on, Nicole says Calvin starts pushing his wife to leave, to go home and feed the dogs.
4: This didn't raise like huge red flags in my head, but it was like, wow, he's really trying to push her out of here compared to usually they'd leave together.
3: Everyone eventually leaves except a dishwasher who yells out for Calvin. That's when Nicole says Calvin grabs her arm.
4: I remember Calvin pulling me into the bathroom.
3: Then she says he locks the door and puts his finger to his lips for her to be quiet. The dishwasher calls for Calvin again and for Nicole as he's leaving. Calvin shouts goodnight back. Then, according to Nicole, he exposes himself to her and tells her to perform oral sex. Her account of what happened at Nodine's is all in police and court records.
4: I just remember, yeah, him pushing my head down. And I remember he was wearing blue boxers, because anytime I pull out blue boxers of my fiancés, I
3: remember. Nicole says she freezes. Fighting back or even resisting doesn't cross her mind.
4: It was just like I had left me even though I could be a tough person. There was no, like, I'm gonna beat this man up. It wasn't like something that went through my head. It was just like this is actually happening.
3: Nicole says she does what he tells her to do. And all she can think is, please let it be over. Just get me home, get me home. Nicole didn't physically resist or try to run away. This is not uncommon. Survivors have told me it felt safer to avoid a fight. They have no idea if the attacker will resort to more physical violence if they resist. And they want to survive with as few injuries as possible. I asked Calvin to tell us his version of what happened. I reached him by phone, but he said he wouldn't talk to me. In court records, Calvin has denied sexually assaulting or harassing Nicole. The morning after all this happened, Nicole goes to the Canton Police Department with her mom. Officer Adam Gomper comes out to meet them.
0: So, What's
1: going on?
3: I got this video through a public records request. Instead of taking Nicole to a private room, Officer Gomper talks to her in the lobby of the police station, which is visible from the street. Nicole notices the large windows, and they make her feel on display. She tells Officer Gomper some background about the restaurant and then shares that Calvin exposed himself to her. I was
4: like, oh my god, oh my god, and I, I froze. It all happened so quickly, and I looked down, and he was like, I know you must not get it at home, so suck it or something.
3: But she leaves it at that. She doesn't mention the alleged earlier butt grabbing or that she felt coerced to perform oral sex. And at this point, Nicole hasn't told a soul the full story, including her mom, who's sitting right next to her.
1: Well, if you want to make a complaint, it's going to be investigated, which means I
3: would take a written statement from you. Nicole's not sure she's ready for that. Also, she's acutely aware that it would be her word against Calvin's, and she thinks his status gives him the upper hand.
4: I know he was with me I can't do shit about
3: it, and I have no proof. Also, she's really worried about losing her job. She says she's supposed to go into work later that day.
4: I don't want to see him, but I want to pretend to go to work and pretend that he doesn't know, or I'm hoping he doesn't remember so I can go to work and at least feel halfway normal.
3: Nicole was hoping that Calvin had been so drunk the night before, he wouldn't remember what had happened. And she could go back to work and somehow forget about it too. This might sound a little strange, a victim tells only part of the story and then hopes her alleged perpetrator will forget the whole thing. But this fits with all the research about sexual assault victims. They often want to minimize and avoid what happened because it's like reliving a trauma. And the closer the relationship is with an assailant, the more likely they are to hold back details. It often takes time to get the full story. It's clear that Nicole isn't ready to launch a full police investigation yet. She and Officer Gomper talk some more he gives Nicole a card from the Office of Victim Services, where she can seek support if she needs it. And he tells her she can come back if she decides she wants to make an official complaint. Thank
4: you
3: very
1: much. Well, well, I hope it works out, and, you know. But it sounds like he's never going to change.
3: As soon as Nicole gets back to work, she realizes returning was a big mistake. In police records, she says Calvin tries to lure her into a small closet with him and propositions her for sex. By the end of her shift, she decides she's never coming back and takes home the photo of her daughter she keeps at work. A few days later, Nicole goes back to the Canton Police Department with Allie, her friend from work, and makes her official complaint with Officer Gomper. She talks about Calvin grabbing her butt exposing himself to her and telling her to perform oral sex. But she still doesn't tell the full story. Officer Gomper notifies Calvin Nodine there's a complaint against him. When he arrives at the Canton Police Department, he's with his lawyer, David Morgan. Calvin is questioned by detective, John Colangelo, who's an experienced investigator. He's been on the force in Canton for 20 years. The interview starts off with the attorney and the detective talking about people they know in common. It turns out the attorney used to play golf with Detective Colangelo's dad. He
5: was my golf partner for one time. He told me how to putt. No, he didn't. He can't putt
6: himself. He
3: was the best putter in the club. No, he
4: wasn't.
3: This may sound like a pretty chummy way to start an interrogation, but a friendly approach is a technique used to build rapport before a detective starts asking tough questions. When the conversation turns to Nicole's allegations, Colangelo strikes a casual tone.
5: What's this girl's name again? Nicole? Nicole. What's yeah. Nicole's deal? I don't know.
3: Detective Colangelo asks Calvin about the sex talk at work.
5: Nicole's saying that there was inappropriate talking, and speech, and sexual stuff. I'm... Um, I'm a meat guy. I
7: grew up in meat plants since I was nine years old. Mm -hmm. So does what I say get a little harsh Mm -hmm. sometimes? Yeah.
3: Then the detective brings up Nicole's and Allie's allegation about him grabbing Nicole's butt. That could be considered a sexual assault in the fourth degree.
5: Apparently, according to her and someone else, your hand made it down to her rear end. No, I wouldn't look on that. Just saying. No. Yeah. Just no. saying it. Why are they yeah. saying it? That's I thought, yeah, ah. I, I, that's the problem. I don't know.
3: Eventually, Colangelo brings up Nicole's more serious allegation.
5: did you look down, you exposed yourself
7: to her. That's bullshit.
3: Calvin says that he didn't even know where Nicole was then.
7: She could have been out front having a cigarette.
5: I. You know, I don't know where she was. Okay. Why would she say this?
7: I don't know. Maybe she thinks the business is going down, she's looking for money?
5: Possible. That's one of the angles I'm looking at.
3: And then Colangelo tries to minimize what happened. Police often do this to get somebody to tell them more.
5: If you were fooling around with Nikki consensually... That's a whole different story. And
3: that might open when it comes up. to sex crimes, arguing that an act was consensual is a common defense for suspects. i a minute with them. Sure. Calvin's lawyer asks to meet with his client privately, and the two men leave the room for a few minutes. When they come back, Calvin has a new story.
7: She grabbed me mm-hmm. and said, look, it, I've got something for you to see. Mm-hmm. I figured there was a problem in the men's room. She was the one that dropped my pants
2: mm-hmm.
7: and gave me a look And it was pretty much so fast, it's like, okay, that fucking happened.
3: His story throws everything he's been saying into question. Calvin's now claiming Nicole pulled him into the bathroom and initiated everything. And Detective Colangelo has now succeeded in getting Calvin to admit that he's been lying.
5: When you come in here and I ask you something, you're telling me she left already, but then the story changes? Look, I'm trying to protect myself.
2: It's
0: embarrassing.
5: It was was
7: a a (laughs) moment after a 12-hour day and a bad decision. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I should have stopped her.
3: Nicole called it. It's his statement against hers. And it's the time when the detective should be pressing for more details, like... How long were you in the bathroom? Were you intoxicated? Draw me a map of where you were standing. But that's not what happens. Instead, Colangelo offers Calvin a way to turn the tables on this whole situation.
5: So you you think she's a liar?
7: As, As far as it not being consensual? Yes. Absolutely.
3: Then Detective Colangelo tries to convince Calvin to take a polygraph.
5: If you pass a polygraph, She can be brought in and it gives us leverage to see if the story changes.
3: He tells Calvin he's used this strategy before in a past case. Later, he'll claim he was bluffing.
5: Now she's a suspect in a false statement, in a false police report. Now she can be asked if she can take, we'll take a polygraph, completely different animal. So you switch the case, that's all.
3: Switch the case just like that The victim can become the suspect. Weeks go by, Nicole wonders what is going on with the case. Then she's called back into the Canton Police Department. This time, it's just Nicole and Detective Colangelo. Have a seat. And they're in a private room with the door shut.
5: This case is now on my desk.
3: Nicole has no idea in this conversation that she may now be considered a suspect she tells the detective she's concerned about how slowly the case is moving.
5: I've done a lot of work on this, as is Officer Confer.
4: Well, wow. I'm glad because yeah, for a while I was like, I just don't think we're taking this seriously. No, very serious. And I was like, I don't know what more I can do.
5: Well these things take time though, too.
3: Actually, we looked at the police case file and after they interviewed Calvin, the police didn't do much. They documented a phone call from him saying he failed a private polygraph because he hadn't taken his medication. And they received a fax from Calvin's lawyer saying that he won't be taking a police-administered polygraph.
4: I know it takes time, but this man has caused me to lose so much money that I had to move out of my place. Um, I went to a doctor, had to get put on more medicine for my PTSD and my anxiety attacks and all that. So my whole life has been flipped upside down.
3: Detective Colangelo assures Nicole that he's working hard on the case. Then he starts to ask her about her relationship with Calvin.
5: Was there any relations between you and Calvin that were consensual prior
3: to that Saturday? Nothing. Colangelo keeps pressing Nicole.
5: I have to be able to understand where these relationships are because he's gonna tell me something different, and he did.
3: Mm -hmm. And it's here, almost an hour in, that this interview takes a drastic turn because Colangelo starts to deploy an interrogation technique meant for suspects, not alleged victims.
5: I have offer him have a polygraph. Do you think he'll take it?
3: I think he would try it.
5: Okay. Do you think he'll pass it? No. What if I told you he took one?
3: Do you know it? You tell me. I do not
5: think so. You don't think you uh, are dead? did What if I told you really. took two?
3: Really? Actually, Calvin took one polygraph, and he failed it.
5: He's taking two polygraphs. Okay. And I know that there are issues in some of these stories.
3: Colangelo is using what police call a ruse, a bluff, or a ploy. It's legal, and it's used to corner a suspect into a confession.
5: So, I need you to think hard. Is there anything that you think will come up or has come up in this investigation that I should know about?
3: Nicole breaks down crying and she discloses what she hasn't told anyone before not her friends, her fiance, or her mom. She's finally confronting what she says happened to her that night. (laughs) There's tissues right there. (laughs) do
0: anything it was just him he pulled me in there
3: and he dropped him and as soon as he told me to do it I just did it because I just didn't know what to do
7: so you didn't give him oral sex
3: (laughs) yeah okay Colangelo hears this as a consensual encounter but Nicole is clear she didn't want to engage in oral sex she says she wanted to tell the whole story, but she was afraid of what other people would think.
4: I just don't want my boyfriend to know, and I don't want people to ask me why I did it when I didn't want to do it. But I was just so scared.
3: Detective Colangelo asks Nicole if she wants to change her previous statement. She says she does. But I don't
4: want it to make I know it looks no, bad if you change your story, but I just was so scared I didn't
5: know what to do. This is why these are very important, because... It's an oath, basically. And you're saying that I understand that, if, that by signing this, I'm telling the truth. And if you're not, then you, you're actually committing a crime also.
3: Nicole didn't tell her full story. And to Colangelo, that's a lie. He doesn't dig deeper. He doesn't ask for more details about her state of mind during the alleged assault, which would help explain why she complied. This black and white thinking, either she's lying and she wasn't assaulted or she's telling the whole truth and is a real victim can shortcut an investigation. And it's a common theme I found in my research. I began looking into cases just like Nicole several years ago where an alleged victim of sexual assault becomes the suspect and is charged with crimes like false reporting. I looked closely at 52 cases and I saw patterns emerge like 15 cases, were decided in a day. Once police find inaccuracies or contradictions, they turn their investigation around. And other times, they never even interview the alleged suspect. Police records sometimes show very little evidence to back up the false reporting charges. After Nicole tells her whole experience to Colangelo, she has to decide whether she wants to officially change her statement or not. Do you want to consult with your attorney? Can I do that? Sure. I
5: just just
4: want to make sure that I might even still have a chance at least of getting some type of justice.
3: Three weeks after her interview with Colangelo, Nicole goes back to the station. She's there to officially revise her statement and turn in printouts of texts, which Colangelo asked her for. A dispatcher tells her Colangelo's busy and he'll reach out if he needs her. She never hears back from him and emails the detective twice to follow up. By this time, Calangelo has already submitted a warrant for her arrest. And when he finally emails her back, he doesn't tell her that. It's been two and a half months since Nicole has told Detective Colangelo the full story. She gets a call from him and she can't believe what she's hearing. You have a
4: warrant out for arrest. You need to come into the station. And I just held that phone and in my head, I am i have no idea what a warrant for my arrest is for because I, I haven't done anything wrong.
3: The charge, making a false statement to a police officer, She turns herself in later that day.
1: Nicole started out as a victim, reporting an alleged crime to the police. Then a detective lied to her, and now she's being charged for lying to him. When we come back, Nicole fights back. That's next on Reveal. From the Center for Investigative Reporting in PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letson. We've been talking about the police investigation into a report of sexual assault. But this isn't your typical case. What makes it stand out is who the police arrested. Not the alleged perpetrator. They arrested the alleged victim. And we should note again, this episode may not be appropriate for all listeners. We can't know from our investigation whether a sexual assault actually occurred, but we can review how the police decided to charge Nicole Chase with a crime, and how she and her attorney fight back. Reveal reporter Rachel DeLeon takes it from here.
3: Today, Nicole lives in a small town not far from where she used to work. It's a cute neighborhood. The houses are spaced out. She's got half an acre around her. When we pull up, Lou Chimes, her attorney, is standing in the driveway.
7: Welcome to the Northeast. <laughs> we got some snow.
3: The ground is covered in 5 inches of snow, and Nicole's house is cozy. She keeps apologizing for the mess, only the place is tidy. It is a full house though. She lives here with her fiance, two kids, and a brand new addition. Yeah.
4: Lou, what? Lou, go get. Hi, sweetie. What's his name? What's it? Blue. <laughs> I just got a puppy. (laughs) His name is Blue. Yes, right now is the potty training and the nipping and the chewing of everything.
3: Nicole surprised her fiancé with Blue a few weeks back. It was his dream to have bloodhounds someday. This house goes back generations. It's where she and her mom both grew up. And now she owns it. Her kids walk the same road she used to to go to school. I feel like I'm doing good,
4: but I'm hoping that I just keep working on myself more and more. And I hope that I somehow just become just better than I already
3: have. Before Nicole even worked at Nodine's restaurant, she'd been through some really tough experiences, including teenage drug addiction and domestic violence. Then came that night at Nodine's in 2017, which led to her arrest. She sought out the help of different lawyers, and one of them posted about her case online. Lou sees the lawyer's message and wants to know more.
7: I looked at the arrest warrant for Nicole, and I hadn't met Nicole yet. And then I read it and reread it two or three times. And then I called the lawyer back, and I says, am I missing something?
3: Nicole's criminal defense attorney is also astounded by the charge and tells prosecutors it's outrageous. The prosecutor agrees to drop the case as long as Nicole doesn't get into any other legal trouble before the next court date. The arrest is erased from her record. But Lou doesn't think that should be the end of it. He also believes Nicole could have a strong civil case against the Canton Police Department. So he sets up a meeting with her.
7: I was just astonished at what I was hearing.
3: Lou specializes in employment and personal injury law but he knows police culture. He's sued police, he's represented police, and was once a prosecutor for the Manhattan DA.
7: I spent um, 15 minutes deciding whether I wanted to represent Nicole, and the hour and 45 minutes of the rest of the two-hour meeting kind of seeing myself cross-examining the police officers in the case. (laughs)
3: Nicole says it was news to her that she could go after the officers and the town for turning her into a suspect.
4: Once they said it was something I could do, it was like, yeah, absolutely. They just arrested me for nothing.
1: So
3: Lou lets the town know he intends to file a civil suit, and the town council decides to launch an internal affairs investigation at the police department. It's an important moment because the police officers will have to explain their actions.
6: Okay, today is May thirty first. It's approximately eight oh eight in the morning. Uh, we're here for the interview of Detective John Clangelo.
3: You're hearing the voice of Canton's Chief of Police Christopher Arciero. It took a long time to get these recordings. We had to fight for them for well over a year. The men are sitting in a drab conference room inside the police station.
6: I want to just show you some of your training records.
3: The chief pulls out printed PowerPoint slides.
6: And I'll just read a couple of them. It talks about the victims might share information that is not consistent, not true, or not complete. But that doesn't mean it's a false report. Does that ring a bell to your, your recollection or your general? It doesn't mean it's a true report either, does it?
3: It's hard no. to hear, but Colangelo's defensive and says, doesn't mean it's a true report either, does it? The chief keeps going.
6: And this is it also true sometimes victims of sexual assault? you know, manifest certain behaviors, they're in shock, they're, they're
3: somewhat traumatized. I'm a
5: psychiatrist. What's that? I'm not a psychiatrist. Okay. You're asking me psychological questions.
3: Soon, the questioning turns to Colangelo's interview with Calvin Nodine, who Nicole has accused of a sex crime. He's a suspect in a police investigation. And the chief wants to know why Colangelo is giving him so much leeway.
6: At the beginning of the interview, you told him he was free to leave. Why did you tell him he was free to leave?
5: Because it was a criminal interview and he was a suspect at the time.
6: So you you give that warning to someone who's a suspect they're free to leave if you have them yeah. in for an interview.
5: Yes. I try to always do that.
3: Then the chief asks Colangelo if he gave Nicole that same warning.
5: She wasn't a suspect.
6: She didn't she was never a suspect at any point in time during your
5: interview? I needed to bring her in to go over the things that he said to see what matched and didn't match. Okay.
6: Any point in time during your interview, if she became a suspect, did you tell her she was free to leave?
5: I don't recall. Okay.
3: Colangelo giving Calvin seemingly preferential treatment is brought up several times in this three-hour-long interview. Another example is when Colangelo tells Calvin that he usually gives a suspect a base on balls for the first false statement. I'm not a baseball person, so I asked around. What he means is giving a pass for the first lie. So
6: so did you ever tell her that I typically would give... A based on
5: Boston's
3: no, because, first false statement. No, because the problem with that
5: is twofold.
3: First, Colangelo argues that he didn't know Nicole's statement was false.
5: I didn't know that she gave a false statement until she broke down Brian and said, "I gotta tell you, I, you know, I gave moral sex."
3: And then he argues something different that no two people are alike.
5: They're like fingerprints or snowflakes. No person gets interviewed the same. I mean, should I, from now on, every interview I do in there say, if you give a false statement, get a base on balls. No, you, it's statements that I make are done to elicit the truth.
3: Colangelo relies on this a lot. The idea that he's only being chummy with Calvin because he's trying to get him to confess to what really happened.
6: Within the first five or ten minutes of the interview, you say to uh, Calvin Odeen that you're not sure you believe everything that she's telling me. Mm-hmm. Why, why would you give him that statement? Doesn't that leave him? You're in picking the, out statements, I mean, You can explain inter- it. There's, I'm
5: going to explain it.
3: Again, Colangelo the leans the on the idea level that level he's bluffing to draw out the truth. Is
5: that. And I'm going to tell you, and I hate to do it on tape, but here's my message. Who are you going to tell your darkest secrets? Someone you like or someone you hate? You're going to tell it to someone you like, so you do your best to find a bond with them.
3: It's kind of an old law enforcement trope, the good cop that makes you feel safe. Colangelo's right. Police experts say it's one way to get people to talk. But then once they do start talking, you want them to keep talking. One experienced investigator told me you should listen closely for inconsistencies and for things that sound absurd or implausible. And during that pivotal moment when Calvin changes his story and says there was consensual oral sex, Colangelo does little to follow up. What details
6: did he give you about how the oral sex occurred? He said they were in the bathroom and she gave him oral sex. Do you know how, how how he got into the bathroom? two of them closing or
5: something. I don't recall exactly.
6: Do you know how uh, his pants came down?
5: I don't recall exactly.
6: Do you recall... You know, where he was positioned in the bathroom? No, I don't recall. You you don't recall? You didn't ask those questions? I don't
5: know. I don't don't recall. So I don't recall if I asked him or not.
3: Colangelo didn't ask those questions during his hour-long interview with Calvin. And when Calvin later calls to say that he failed a private polygraph, there's also no follow-up.
5: Did you ever ask to get the results of that first polygraph? No, I didn't. Why not? Because they're not admissible in court. Because... I know he's going to say no, and you're not going to get it on a search warrant because it's not evidence of a crime, seeing that it's not admissible in
6: court. Well, again, does it necessarily have to be admissible in court if you use it for impeachment purposes or evidentiary purposes or other leads to follow-up purposes?
3: I wanted to talk to Colangelo myself. I called, texted, emailed. Finally, his attorney responded. She'd advised that he not talk to me, but said he acted appropriately at all times. I also tried to reach Officer Gomper, the first officer Nicole spoke with, but he never responded. In the internal affairs interview, Colangelo gets increasingly defiant with the chief.
5: You see, this investigation you're doing, you're trying to to fit me into a theory that you have. I don't, I sit back and I let people tell me what happened and, and that's the truth is calvin nodine a crass individual he is there's no question about it he's not very likable in my opinion but i'm sure other some people do like him certainly if there was a probable cause for an arrest for calvin or or i developed that he would have been arrested he's you know calvin nodine is not my friend and i'm not doing him any favors i'm following what the truth is
3: The irony is that Calangelo's quest for the truth is a win for Calvin, but it's Nicole who thanks Colangelo during her interview with him at the police station.
0: Thank you for
4: like being here for me, but also thank you for making me be able to come out and say to somebody what really happened.
3: This was a breakthrough moment for Nicole. She felt like she had finally admitted the full extent of her sexual assaults. Months would pass after that interview, and there would be no further action by the police except to write up her arrest warrant.
4: If I had only knew what he had been doing, and I would have never thanked him for that. I would have never told him.
3: In a court deposition, Nicole shared that she will never report a crime to the Canton Police Department again and many others share her distrust of police. According to research, 70% of sexual assault crimes go unreported. And the fear of not being believed is one of the many reasons why.
1: In the end, the internal affairs investigation found that Detective Colangelo should have told prosecutors Nicole tried to revise her statement. It also dinged him for letting Nicole believe she was a victim when a warrant was already out for her arrest. Colangelo was suspended for three days without pay. Then he turned around and sued the town, claiming he'd been scapegoated in a, quote, sham internal affairs investigation to appease the Me Too movement for political gain. The judge dismissed the case. Still, the internal affairs investigation did uphold Colangelo's decision to arrest Nicole, and it claims that the Connecticut State Police reviewed the case, too, and found Colangelo was also justified in not arresting Calvin.
7: That's absolutely
3: false. Wow. Okay.
1: We find out what one state investigator really thought about the case next on Reveal. from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. This is Reveal. I'm Al Letson. We've been talking about Nicole Chase, who reported an alleged sex crime to the Canton Police Department. Then she was arrested. The charges against Nicole were eventually dropped, and the police department conducted an internal investigation. It found Nicole's arrest was justified, but officers did make some mistakes. So the department made changes, like a supervisor must now be alerted before a victim becomes a suspect. But what about Nicole's accusations against Calvin Nodine? Should he have been arrested? That question got kicked to the state police to answer. So reveals Rachel DeLeon followed up with them.
3: Inside a report from Canton Police Chief Christopher Arciero's internal affairs investigation is a line. It says... Connecticut State Police reviewed Nicole's case and found no probable cause to arrest Calvin. I wanted to read this review to understand their logic, so I asked the state police for it, and their legal department said they never conducted an investigation into the matter and didn't make any official determinations. But I knew a state police sergeant was at least assigned to look at the case. I saw his name, Sergeant Alan Bisson, in an email So I called him.
7: I never said there was no finding of probable cause to pursue charges. I never said that. That is, that's absolutely false.
3: Wow. Okay. Alan Bisson worked for the state police for about 25 years. He retired in good standing in 2022. And he remembers being given Nicole's case to review. It stuck with him all these years.
7: I felt that she had a case against that guy. And why he didn't get arrested is beyond me. I think this
3: girl got victimized twice. This was Allen's own personal view, and he didn't speak up at the time. Today, he regrets not bringing his concerns to the attention of state prosecutors. Instead, he says he recommended his department not get involved any further.
7: It just didn't smell right for me, and uh, it's not the way I would have handled it.
3: But Chief Arciero maintains that the state police found there was no probable cause to arrest Calvin. That's based on a voicemail from Alan's boss, who tells the chief he's supportive of the Canton officer's investigation. And some emails. In one email from April 2018, Chief Arciero summarizes a phone call between himself and Alan. It says, and I'm paraphrasing, Your office found no probable cause to arrest Calvin and had no issues with my detective's investigation or interviews. Then the chief writes, if I missed or misconstrued anything, let me know. But Allen never writes back. He says he doesn't remember getting this email. Nearly two months later, RCRO reaches out again to ask whether there will be a written summary of state police findings. This time, Allen responds and says, there shall be no written summary for findings on this case. He'd been talking to his legal department about his concerns.
7: I told him that there was definitely some malfeasance on this investigation and that uh, if we pursue this or write anything like this, we'll be involved in a lawsuit because the procedure that they utilized was definitely wrong. I didn't see it as a correct way to do an investigation.
3: Alan was afraid Nicole was going to sue, and he was right. Nicole starts with her boss, Calvin Nodine. Her lawsuit against Calvin and Nodine Smokehouse alleges that Calvin sexually assaulted Nicole and caused her emotional distress. Calvin denies any wrongdoing. He and the business eventually settle the lawsuit for an undisclosed amount. Next, Nicole sues the town of Canton and the police. Officer Gomper and Detective Colangelo are named in the suit. I think
7: the police misconduct here was egregious.
3: That's Lou Chimes, Nicole's lawyer. The lawsuit alleges there was no basis for her arrest and that the officers acted with malice and deliberate disregard for her rights.
7: But there was a second claim that their treatment of Nicole was motivated by bias on the account of her gender.
3: The town and the officers fight back in a legal battle that will drag on for years. They claim Nicole knew the story she told police wasn't true, but she signed a sworn written statement anyway. So, the officers could legally arrest her. Lawyers for the town also argue that police didn't discriminate against Nicole, and in fact, showed compassion. They say Colangelo assured her that just because her story had changed didn't mean he wasn't listening they ask the court to stop the case from going to trial. The town's request lands on the desk of Judge Vanessa L. Bryant. She was appointed by President George W. Bush and had been active in Republican politics. Here she is at her confirmation hearing.
4: I listen actively
3: and attentively. I
4: decide fairly and decisively and efficiently.
3: Judge Bryant issues a meticulous 51 page decision. It points out the sloppy police work that led to Nicole's arrest, including failing to update the arrest warrant with Nicole's latest statement. Had a judge or prosecutor known she tried to reach Colangelo several times and amend her statement, she might never have been arrested. Then the judge addresses the gender bias claim. She says a reasonable jury might think that Colangelo believing Calvin's story and then suggesting Nicole fabricated hers for financial gain is a sign that he was siding with the man in this case. But to Lou, the most important thing the judge writes is this. The alleged false statement was an omission of a completed sex act that plaintiff was not under any duty to disclose.
7: A victim has no duty to make an affirmative statement.
3: In other words, a victim is not obligated to tell the police their full story and an omission is not a lie, contrary to what police claimed.
7: That was a recognition that sexual assault survivors are often reluctant to come forward if at all, and may come forward in piecemeal, and we don't want to penalize them for that.
3: All these issues the judge is pointing out wear down the town's main argument that Colangelo and Gomper should be given qualified immunity. It's a common defense in cases of police misconduct. The idea behind it is that police officers need some level of protection from lawsuits so that they can make difficult decisions in the line of duty without hesitating. It's a thick protective shield. And the only way to pierce it is to prove that a police officer is plainly incompetent or knowingly violated a law. And in Nicole's case, Judge Bryant writes that a jury could reasonably find both to be true. Judge Bryant is especially critical of the officer's decision to switch the case on a sexual assault victim who is visibly upset she says a jury could find the officer's conduct beyond all possible bounds of decency. The judge decides the case should go to trial, but the town and officers keep trying to prevent that. So they appeal to the next highest court. Their arguments before the judges stream online. The next case is Chase v. Town of Canter. Nicole tunes in. I was listening to it the whole day, and I was really sad and I was really scared. An attorney for the officers tells the judges that Nicole intentionally lied and misled them. But the judges push back, and one of them says even if it was true, should she be arrested?
6: Why would a reasonable police officer arrest her in these circumstances? Does it make any sense to arrest her?
3: The lawyer responds and says, yes, because it's a crime. Then the issue with the sloppy warrant comes up again. It's hard to hear, but Lou tells the judges that the warrant contains a major lie.
5: ...and then a lie about the polygraph in the warrant. Oh, so they lied about the polygraph in the warrant? Yes.
3: Nicole's arrest warrant refers to the fact that Nodine took two polygraph tests, but that's not true.
5: Now that, I think, could quite reasonably be read to be misleading a judge. I tell you, if I were submitted an affidavit like this, I'd be pretty angry and I'd think, wait a minute, you led me to believe there were two polygraphs.
3: Colangelo's bluff has made it into Nicole's arrest warrant. And there's more. That one polygraph Calvin took, he failed it. And the warrant leaves that out.
5: Well, if they thought that Nodine had failed a polygraph, they might think that there was a sexual assault. And therefore, she was telling the truth.
3: The judges affirmed the lower court's decision to go to trial. Nicole feels vindicated.
4: It would just meant a lot because that's a big court to just, like, dismiss something. And it meant the world to me that they were on my side and not their side.
3: But the town and officers won't let it go and appeal all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. But before it's time for the court to review the case, the town settles and the appeal is withdrawn from the Supreme Court. I asked for the amount of the settlement, but Lou said it's confidential. By this time, both Colangelo and Gomper have left the Canton Police Department. Colangelo a security director for a local organization, and Gomper's a police dispatcher at a town nearby. To memorialize Nicole's victory, Lou frames the letter he got from the Supreme Court dismissing the case and gives it to Nicole. Oh, oh. I thank thought- you. <laughs> yeah, that means a lot. It's framed in black and gold, and the document is stamped with the U.S. Supreme Court seal and eagle. Nicole reads it aloud. Uh the foregoing joint stipulation of
4: dismissal of the petition for, I want to say right. Writ of Sochiarism. Writ
3: of what?
7: Sociarism.
3: Yep, that having been received. By this all sounds kind of administrative, but for Nicole, this document represents the end of a painful chapter in her life. Even after this happy ending, settling with Calvin and the town, Nicole's still divided about whether there was justice in her case. I feel like at the end of the day,
4: that a person, if they do that to somebody, should end up behind bars. Something that makes them not want to do it again or hurt somebody ever again. I
3: don't know. Calvin was never charged in this case. Nodine's restaurant is long gone, but their meat processing plant is up and running. Calvin still works in the family business.
1: That was Reveal's Rachel DeLeon. Our story was produced by Catherine Miskowski. Ray's been investigating cases like this one across the country. Don't miss her documentary on Netflix, Victim Suspect, starting May 23rd. Our lead producer for this week's show is Katherine Miskowski. She had help from Catherine Steyer-Martinez. Cynthia Rodriguez edited the show. Additional editing by Reveals Kate Howard and special thanks to Amanda Pike. Nikki Frick and Kim Frida are our fact checkers. Sarah Cohen was our data consultant. We had research help from Betty Marquez, Skylar Glover, Vanessa Ochevillio, and Elena Neil Sachs. Victoria Baronetsky is our general counsel. Our production manager is Steven Rascon. Original score and sound designed by the Dynamic Duo, Jay Breezy, Mr. Jim Briggs, and Fernando Mameno Aruda. Our digital producer is Sarah Merck. Our CEO is Robert Rosenthal. Our COO is Maria Feldman. Our interim executive producers are Brett Myers and Taki Teleditas. Our theme music is by Camarado. Lightning support for reveals provided by the ford foundation the reva and david logan foundation the john d and Catherine t macarthur foundation the jonathan logan family foundation the robert wood johnson foundation the park foundation and the hellman foundation reveal is a co-production of the center for investigative reporting and prx i'm al Letson, and remember there is always more to the story